0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: When we are baptized, identified into Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are baptized into His eternal being and work. We have seen that we are identified with Him in His eternal position, His virgin birth, His circumcision, and His increase in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The next time we find a record of Christ's work is at his own baptism. Into this, we are identified by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But we must study the incident in order to understand its significance.
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, Christ's Own Baptism. When you finish washing the dishes, you don't put them back in the sink and begin washing them again. You don't need to wash something that is already clean. John the Baptist came with a baptism for sinners unto repentance, but Jesus came to John to be baptized even though he was not a sinner and did not need to repent. Why was Jesus baptized, and what significance does this have for us today? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Christ's Own Baptism.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Bless thy truth to us in this hour that we may grow in grace and in the knowledge of that truth. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue in our study of Romans 6.3, which states that we were baptized into Jesus Christ, identified into Christ. The works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer are many and varied. There are several of these works, distinct and different, which take place in the believer in the very instant of his salvation. He is born of the Spirit into the family of God. His body becomes indwelt of the Holy Spirit. He is sealed of the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption, and he is baptized or identified of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. The only way that any believer can be in Christ is by this work of the Holy Spirit, and it would be impossible for anyone to be a Christian in the Bible sense of the word without having been baptized of the Holy Spirit, and it should be strictly understood that I am not speaking of water baptism in any sense. There are scores of verses in the epistles which speak of the believer as being in Christ, and every one of them expresses a truth that is related to this great doctrine and work of the Spirit. First, we must comprehend that Christian baptism and the baptism of John have no connection the one with the other. This is proven by the fact recorded in Acts 19 that the people of the diaspora, the scattering, who had been identified with John's baptism and who had been in ignorance of the intervening events of Christ's ministry and redemptive work, were baptized over again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when Paul came to visit them. We must remember that the church today is not and can never be like the church in the book of the Acts, in many respects. I can illustrate this by a simple example. Suppose that you have a child. I congratulate you and say, I hope that when the child grows up, he shall become an American citizen. You answer immediately and rightly that the child became an American citizen the instant he was born. But suppose I object and ask, do you think that your child is better than George Washington? How did George Washington become an American citizen? He was first of all a British colonist for about half a century, then he was a revolutionary for approximately eight years, and then he was an American citizen. So your child will have to go through the same process. You rightly insist, of course, that I am wrong and that there is no relationship between the two experiences. Washington lived in a transition period, and while it was a very important period, its conditions do not carry over into our day and generation. In exactly the same manner, the men of the book of the Acts lived in a transition period. Peter, James, John, and the rest were, first of all, good Jews living under the Mosaic law. They had the great advantage of being Israelites, and they were in a position of infinite advantage over the Egyptians or the men of the schools of Plato and Aristotle. And then they entered a transition period when Christ called them to follow him. They were not fully taken out from under the privileges and advantages of their carnal position until the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Then he put his hand under the chin of each disciple and breathed on them, saying, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, the holy breath. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now it is because of this great work and promise that I have the power, and you, if you are a born-again believer, every Christian, has the power to remit and retain sins. I can preach the gospel to you today and can tell you on all the authority of the word of God that if you truly believe that the Lord Jesus took your place upon the cross and paid for your sins, then they are remitted forever. In like manner, I can tell you upon all the authority of the word of God that if you refuse to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, your sins are retained upon you and will carry you to the lake of fire. There are not three places in the universe where sin may be. There are only two. I repeat it. There are not three places in the universe where sin may be. There are only two. Your sin is upon yourself, or it is upon the Savior. It was after this experience that Pentecost came, and the similar work of the Holy Spirit came to every one of those who truly believed in the Lord Jesus. The power that was given to the individual disciples was transferred to every man, woman, and child who had been born again, and it has been transferred to us in our day. We who live today do not pass through the transition period of the book of the Acts. I would be a fool if I told you that your religious experiences had to parallel those of Peter, James, and John. We get in one flashing second of justification what it took them years upon years to receive. Christ has died. Christ is risen. There is the guarantee of my instant salvation and of my eternal position in him. It is in this manner that we must understand the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and Christian baptism, which came much later. Before we leave the matter, let us look once more at the case of the Ephesian believers who were asked the question which is so often bandied about in misuse in our day. Paul arrived in Ephesus and found certain disciples to whom he said, Have ye received the Holy Spirit since ye believed? They answered, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Paul asked them about their baptism, and they replied that they had been baptized by John the Baptist. He then gave them Christian baptism, and they were taken out of Israel and placed in the true church. Again, let me illustrate this happening by a parallel from our early American history. We know that there were colonists who left Virginia in the middle of the 18th century and started the long road across the mountains toward the plains of the West. Some of them were forced to stop on the way because of sickness or the breaking of an axle in their wagon or for some other reason. They settled in the coves of the mountains of what is now eastern Tennessee or Kentucky and were cut off from the world completely. Let us consider such a family which had left Virginia in 1770. They said goodbye to their friends, cried, God save the king, and entered the wilderness. They were forced to abandon their journey and settle down in the mountains. Fifteen years passed before they saw another white man. We can imagine the excitement when the noise of another team rang through the valley. As soon as they had satisfied themselves that there was no danger, they greet the newcomers and there is much exchange of conversation. The settlers might ask, and who is king now? The answer would come immediately, well, there is no king now. We have had a revolution. There's been a long and bloody war. We are now a republic, and George Washington is the president. The settler might say, almost in awe, well, think of that. Here we've been living and thinking of ourselves as loyal subjects of His Majesty the King, and now we discover that we're Americans, citizens of our own republic. Well, long live the republic. Now, that is something like the experience which Paul discovered in Ephesus when he arrived among these people who were lovers of the Messiah, but who did not know that he had come. These people had made a trip to the land of Israel in the days of John the Baptist, and, moved by the word of God, had presented themselves to John the Baptist, and had received baptism at his hands. They returned to Ephesus. They heard no word of events in Palestine. The years passed quickly. Christ is manifested, completes his ministry, goes to the cross to die, Rises again and goes back to heaven after having given the Holy Spirit to every member of the infant church. Now, after some years, Paul reaches the isolated group who have been worshiping in the hope of the Messiah. And they learn with joy that the Messiah has come and that the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad from the risen Lord. They too are received into the church of Jesus Christ, which had its inception on the day of Pentecost. And all of the gifts and blessings of God become theirs under the conditions which prevail in this present age. The question, have ye received the Holy Spirit since ye believed, could apply only to the first generation of the Christian church, which lived through the transition period. The new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit now take place at the same instant. We must understand also that the baptism of sinners unto repentance by John the Baptist and the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ by John the Baptist were two quite different things. Christ was not baptized unto repentance, for he had nothing of which to repent. We have seen that there is a metaphorical meaning of the word baptize in addition to its literal meaning to immerse. This figurative meaning of identification is never more evident than in the work of John the Baptist, the forerunner, with respect to Jesus Christ. It was John who identified the Messiah, Israel's Passover lamb, Let us remind ourselves of the method by which a Passover lamb was chosen. Then we shall understand how John the Baptist selected the Lord Jesus. A man went into his sheepfold to choose a lamb for the sacrifice. It was the tenth day of the month Nisan. He took a lamb and examined it. No, that one would not do. Evidently it had been torn. Its tender skin had been hurt on a thorn at one time, and there was a scar. He caught another and looked at it carefully. No, evidently that one had got its foot in a hole, and there was a bone in its leg that had been broken and imperfectly healed. This one had a wen; that one had a scab. Finally a lamb was found that seemed perfectly whole. It was without spot or blemish. It was taken into the house and kept for three days. Then it was examined again, and on the next day, the fourteenth day of the month, it was put to death. Now, John, the forerunner knew that he was to identify the Messiah, the Passover lamb. The crowds of people followed him. He looked them over. He had the consciousness that though his own ministry was great, there came a mightier that was to follow him. The Pharisees asked him if he were the Messiah. His language was emphatic. We read in John 1:20, he confessed and denied not, but confessed. I, John the Baptist, am not the Christ. There must have been within him a sense of the overflow of desire to find the one who was the object of his mission. Suddenly, there emerged a noble young Pharisee, we will say, head and shoulders above the people. There may have been the momentary thought in John, could this be the one for whom I am waiting? Then, as he watched him narrowly, he saw a fretful moment of impatience as he pushed a child from his path. Immediately, John knew that this man with a blemish could not be the savior. Then another, with great show of piety, was praying a beautiful prayer in the marketplace. The forerunner thought, could this be he? And then a childish voice is heard. Mother, is that the man who devoured our house when father died? Spots and blemishes all too visible in all the sons of Adam. And then the Lord, the Holy Spirit, comes upon John as he sees Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Thus, John, the identifier, points to the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of the Passover. He is seen to be without spot or blemish. But who is capable of judging this? John may see all the outward aspects of an earthly life, but only God can look upon the heart. And if John is chosen to testify of the perfections of the Messiah from an earthly point of view, God himself must give the attestation of the righteousness the inward holiness of his lamb. And so it was, a voice is heard from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. And when the Lord Jesus had been thus approved, he was taken into the house of Israel for three years. During these three years, the Lord Jesus accompanied with sinners. He sat and talked and ate and drank with people whom the world called evil. Harlots looked him in the eye and thieves were among his companions. When the three years had passed, God gave him, Jesus Christ, a public examination in the sight of men, angels, and demons. Taking him to the Mount of Transfiguration, God again looked upon the heart of his Son. Is there now a blemish in this Holy One? Once more the voice comes from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Now the identification is complete, and the lamb who had been identified by John is seen as qualified to die for the sins of men. Then the lamb was taken out of the house and was put to death for our sins. Now, in our day, the baptism of the Holy Spirit identifies every believer with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are baptized into his baptism. And our water baptism is a symbol of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which in turn identifies us into even his baptism, his public manifestation. For in that act by John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus was publicly manifested as the Son of God. And there comes a time when we are publicly manifested as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to take our place before the world as belonging to him. It is somewhat like a wedding where a bride is publicly manifested as taking the name of her bridegroom, and as henceforth belonging to him. I will not enter into the bypaths that have been opened up to us by conflicting theologies. I do not find that water baptism has anything to do with regeneration. Some believe in covenant baptism. Others hold to what is known as believer's baptism. We will let other men discuss these matters. They are not pertinent to the point that we are discussing. What we wish to emphasize is that in all true Christian lives, there comes a time when there is a public confession of the Savior. Whether it is at the moment of your adult baptism, or whether it is at the moment you confirm vows that were taken on your behalf, or at some other time, does not matter for our present purpose. There are widely divergent views held by many who are totally united on the meaning of the person and the work of our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is important to my purpose here is that we shall realize that in our baptism in the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ, we are all, whatever our name or sign, identified in the public manifestation of our position as sons. I do not find any place in the scripture for secret believers, so-called. When a man is truly saved, that life must manifest itself as the life of God. The individual must be manifested as God's son in the midst of a world that is filled with individuals who are children of wrath and children of disobedience. Perhaps the best example of this work of God in our hearts is that which reminds us that we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, as we read in Romans 8:15. Now, what is this adoption of sons, which was one of the purposes of our redemption? For we read in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. The illustration has become somewhat confused in the modern mind, because the process of adoption in Anglo-Saxon countries concerns something very different from the adoptio of Roman law. Today, childless parents take a homeless orphan and the transaction is called adoption. Do not think that is what the Bible means by adoption. In Roman law, the adoptio was something quite different. A father adopted even his own son under that system. A child grew up in his father's house. He might have been the heir of all that his father possessed, but he could not involve his father in debts, nor could he have any advanced receipt of his patrimony. Anyone who loaned him money before the adoption might whistle for his payment. But the day came when the father brought his son into the forum, introduced him to the praetors and the edels, and had the name of his son publicly inscribed as his heir. Only then was the father legally responsible for the son's debts. That was the adoption known in the days of our Lord. Later, in the days of the decline of the empire, it became the custom for childless fathers to go through this procedure on behalf of men whom they chose as their heirs, but who were not their sons by birth. And thus evolved our modern custom of adoption of an outsider into the household. But when the Bible tells us that we are adopted as the sons of God, it means that we who were eternally chosen and in the fullness of time quickened by the Holy Spirit are now made publicly manifest in the sight of heaven and in the sight of earth as the sons of God. This is our position before the angels of the universe, fallen and unfallen. We sing it, for I've been adopted, My name's written down. The heir to a mansion, a robe, and a crown. I am a child of the king, a child of the king. In Jesus my savior, I am a child of the king. Now we can see why the enemy hates this truth. We can see why Satan has attempted to circulate the great lie that God is the father of all men and that all men are brothers. Such doctrines are not only false, but our errors which are calculated to hide the great truths which I am presenting here. According to the thesis that we hold, our adoption in Christ, our public manifestation as sons of God, is a part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our behalf in baptizing us into the body of our Lord. It is because of this that we can hear the beloved disciple John saying to us, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. Now there must be added to this a most searching word. When we stand publicly before the world as sons of God, we have taken his name. You, in your school, office, factory, shop, neighborhood, you bear the name of Christ. I have found it a help even with small children who confessed that they believed in the Lord as their Savior to make them see that they are the children of the light and that therefore they must walk as the children of the light. Tell your children that before they go to school. They are not to gauge their conduct after that of the worldlings round about them, even though these may be in great majority and even in the place of leadership. Because we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, We are adopted as sons, publicly manifested as his, and we must bear the honor of his name. There is a noblesse oblige that goes with the Christian calling. A possible interpretation of the third commandment is interesting in this connection. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain is generally interpreted as a commandment against blasphemy, swearing, and the light use of the Lord's name. Let me suggest an additional meaning of the commandment. A young woman comes to the altar to be married. She has her maiden name, which she abandons in order to take the name of her husband. She is not to take that name in vain. Henceforth, he is involved in everything she does, because when she speaks, she is identified as Mrs. and no longer as Miss. And it is the name of her husband that is honored or sullied by her actions. Thus, when we take the name of the Lord Jesus, when we are publicly manifested as Christians, we stop being Miss Worldling and become Mrs. Christian. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. We are identified into him, and we are to live in the light of that truth. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that everyone that names the name of Jesus Christ may be careful to walk circumspectly, in holiness, because we do bear the name of Jesus Christ. Speak the word to each heart in this hour. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God without spot or blemish. He alone was the only one qualified to take the sins of the world upon himself as our blood sacrifice, substitute, and Savior. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Christ's Own Baptism. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Christ's Own Baptism or simply request message number R6-8. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled Your Right to Heaven. Many people believe they have a right to go to heaven based on their good works or moral character, but the Bible teaches us that we are all sinners and deserve eternal condemnation. This free booklet sets forth the gospel declaration that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give eternal life to all who trust in Him. You do have a right to heaven based on the person of Jesus Christ and His finished work of salvation. Ask for your free copy of Your Right to Heaven when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org.